For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Monday, everybody. Happy Labor Day. Here's Benny. He wants to say hello to everybody. And I want to welcome you all to our show tonight. I am so excited about tonight's show because tonight we are going to be celebrating one of my favorite television icons. Before I bring him on, I'd like to thank our sponsors tonight. First of all, we have the EMC Program Studio in New Jersey. If you're looking for great musical direction for your kids, uh, this is the place to go. And I also want to thank Deborah Stone, who has a new show coming up. Uh, she's going to be at the Laurie Beachman Theater. So please check her out. Thank you both for sponsoring tonight's show. Uh, and I want to bring on our very special guest right away. Uh, Bert Ward, I have been a fan of yours for so long. There's so much to celebrate with the work that you've done, not only with the television work, but the work that you're doing with animals. Anyone who does the work that you and your wife are doing with animals uh, is a friend in my book. Uh, because as Doris Day and so many, Mary Tyler Moore, Bernadette Peters, the people who've devoted their lives to our four-legged friends, uh, you know, your champions in my books. So we're going to talk about that as well. But I want to thank you for all the work that you're doing. And uh, we're going to go into your past, your present, and of course, your future. But I'd like to begin, as I do with all of my shows, by asking who or what are you celebrating today? Well, I'm celebrating your compliment, Richard. Uh, <laughs> that's very nice of you. Um, you know, today is Labor Day, and when we celebrate all the people in our country that work so hard, don't get much uh, recognition, sometimes uh, have really difficult jobs, some dangerous jobs. And for me, uh, I, uh, I appreciate everybody that works. Um, it actually is a wonderful thing to work, you know. I, I think uh, it keeps us mentally sharp. I think it uh, helps us integrate ourselves with other people and socialize and things like that. And it kind of reminds me of <clears throat> the what I was told the three essentials to happiness, Richard, which are one, something to do, which obviously could be work, someone to love, and something to look forward to. Those are the three essentials to happiness. And you've got all three. Uh, yes, I do, actually. And and I hope that everybody has all three. I hope so. You know, it's funny because when I always look back on a person's life, their career, and their body of worth, which is what I like to refer to it as, I always like to go back to the five-year-old self. Uh, because the five-year-old self, to me, is the purest self. That's before life begins to tell you who you should be or who you shouldn't be. And as I began to look back on your past, um, there was so much that I didn't know about you. Of course, so many of us know, I, I know that so many of your fans are watching right now. Uh, and like myself, uh, twice a week, we would sit there and we would watch you and Adam West, God best, bless both of you, uh, fighting uh, off crime each week in a fun way uh, without any blood and gore uh, God bless both of you for that, uh, and the writers that wrote these incredible shows. 
and the iconic actors that you got a chance to work with. But as I went back and I started looking at your past, uh, you were an ice skater at such an early, early age. Uh, and you talk about work. The work ethic for you started at a very early age. How old exactly were you when you first started uh, working professionally? Well, my father believed in a really early work ethic. So uh, I started working in my father's uh, traveling ice show at age two. Um, actually, I was uh, older than that right there uh, in that picture you're showing. But uh, my father had uh, 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 the largest traveling ice show. In fact, I, it may have been the only one at the time called Rhapsody on Ice. It was the predecessor of Ice Capades. And he had some of the top skaters uh, in the world at the time that worked in the show. And as part of the show, uh, they would bring me out uh, and it would be like two of their top skaters. And they would like one each one hold one of my hands and they would skate me around the arena and people would clap. And then they would let go and I would skate around and people were like going nuts at the time. I mean, my, my skates are only like, uh, I bet eight inches long and that's including the blade <laughs> the shoe is probably only about four inches long uh and i remember that i what i do remember of that though was the incredible sound of the crowd and the the light the bright light you see uh, on on ice when when they shine lights on it you can't see anything out there in the audience so i couldn't see who it was but i could hear and I remember that. I re really remember that. I don't remember much else, but I remember that. I do remember a little bit of skating around. So that was the beginning for me. Um, and But my whole life has been extremely active, extremely uh, lots of athletics. I went to, in elementary school. I was voted the best athlete in the school. I uh, went on to uh, high school and wrestling, golf, tennis, uh, track. Um, I played first, yeah, for, first first board uh, of the chess team of Beverly Hills High, which uh, I think was right there at the state championships. And so it was for me, it, it was uh, everything was a lot of fun. I always wanted to do something both actively and then um, and then academically, I was um, I was in the top three percent of, of the country in college uh, on math and science and when I left to do Batman, uh, the dean was upset that I should have been a nuclear physicist. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I uh, did a lot of speed reading. I was clocked as the world's fastest reader at uh, 30,000 words a minute with 90% comprehension uh, in front of the American Medical so uh, Society in Beverly Hills. Uh, to give you an idea, the average reader reads about 240 words a minute with 40% comprehension. Uh, I remember reading in in college the um, at UCLA the uh, War and Peace, which was fourteen hundred and forty two pages in forty five minutes, and I got an ASA final on that. So I was really fortunate uh, that the the speed reading and the and all the athletics and everything. I was just really very active, you know. And uh, I always wanted to do something. I, I and in fact, kind of funny as a kid, I really wanted to be. Um, like Superboy, where I lived, there was no Batman comic books. Uh, I never even heard of Batman until after I got the series. Uh, but I had heard of, of course, and I watched the uh, shows about Superman on television. I read Superman comic books. I wanted to be Superboy. And, and you showed me, a, showed a picture of me very young there. There's also a photo of me on a tricycle, 
with a bath towel wrapped around my my neck, <laughs> yes. held together with a clothespin. And boy, I you know I, I remember just riding that tricycle. I thought I was near going to ride the wheels off of that. I, I just enjoyed that so much. And I, I growing up, I think I was kind of a quiet kid. Um, and as a, as because I was a little bit of a loner, I spent a lot of time kind of introspectively thinking and kind of daydreaming about being a superhero. And, you know, I honestly believe that thoughts are things. And if you think hard enough, strong enough and long enough, you might be able to get just what you're thinking about. Well, you and I are on the same wavelength right now, because I was my next question was going to be if you believed in manifestation and uh, and that you manifested this career that you had, uh, because I also read that you you love comic books. You read these books and uh, and then all of a sudden uh, at 19, uh, this incredible career change happened for you. Uh, but I want to go back to something you said a few moments ago when you talked about the lights and hearing the roar of the crowd and everything, Frank Langella talks in his book about that moment when you step from the darkness into the light. Uh, the business of show business, when did that spark attract you? And when were you starting to being pulled in that direction? Well, you know, it wasn't like the glamour of being a star or anything that that wasn't a, of any interest to me. Actually, what was of interest to me is the fact that I, as I said, I spent a lot of time kind of like daydreaming and things like that. And really, I think that was a great preparation for acting because you are kind of, you know, you're daydreaming, you're really acting things out in your mind, you're seeing things happen and you're, you know, reacting to them and thinking about them, considering them. Um, and, uh, so, so for me, uh, and then, and then I remember when I got out of high school, I had a wonderful opportunity to apprentice at Bucks County Playhouse in New Hope, Pennsylvania. <laughs> I was there, there last week. <laughs> yes. And the New Hope, a wonderful place. I was, a, an apprentice. Uh, I, I, I was there along with, uh, another guy named Rob Reiner and, uh, he, uh, we all were like stage hands and we would, we would work like all long hours putting sets together and then every other week they'd have a guest star come in and on a Friday we would start putting that set up that we'd been building during the week before and we have to stay up night and day till Sunday night and so that it could open on Monday night uh and it was a uh, it was it was a lot of fun you know and then I came back uh after that wonderful experience to uh where my, I was helping my father. My father had ultimately sold the, the um, uh, Rhapsody on Ice, and he became a very prominent broker, real estate broker in Beverly Hills. And I helped him on weekends. I would, what they call sitting on a house, where you basically sit there and you wait for people on, on Saturdays and Sundays who might be looking for a home and they see open house. And one of the people that came in was a, a, a very prominent uh, movie producer, Saul David. And um, I guess I was a little bit uh, brazen by asking him, would he watch a scene? And he was kind of caught off guard. We said, sure, you know, and I did a scene. He said, you know, I think you, uh, you've got some talent. Uh, let me send you to an agent. So uh, I was sent to an agent who, <laughs> the first thing the agent said to me is, I can't get work for the actors I've got. Don't expect to ever work for at least one year. And if you do, you might get a, a single line. And I would never take you anybody now because I can't get to work for my actors. But I'm going to take you because this producer asked me and I can't say no. 
So I go, oh, okay. <laughs> and then it was, uh, I, I left there. I mean, I didn't sign any agreement or anything. It was just kind of like he said he would try to get some things for me. And it was probably about three weeks later that I got a call from someone in his office who said, oh, there's something going over on uh, at 20th Century Fox tomorrow. Um, we got you a, a pet drive on pass at 430 go over there and then there and i said well what is it about and they said I, I really don't know but they'll know so just go over there so i drove over the next day right on pico boulevard in west los angeles and i'd never been in the studio before and it was you know it was a big lot and all these bungalows and i went to um, one bungalow that there was a casting director and i was introduced to the casting director you know he 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 didn't really he just kind of chit-chatted for a minute or two said would you like to meet the executive producer i said sure i mean i figured hey everybody gets to meet the executive producer well that's not true but i didn't know it it's my first interview now i had been studying professionally for several years and i had was also in class at ucla so it wasn't like i hadn't studied i just had never tried out for anything richard so i went to see the executive producer his name was William Dozier, very prominent, had been a senior <laughs> vice president at, at CBS and Hallmark, you know, uh, films and, you know, uh, and I, I guess because I hadn't been on an interview, I wasn't intimidated. You know, I just walked in and I said, hello, sir. Nice to meet you. And he's kind of like, whoa, you know, and he kind of looked at me for a minute. He said, well, you're kind of big for the part. I said, oh, but sir, I promise you, I won't grow anymore. And he laughed. I mean, how can you promise somebody you're not going to grow? Um, and then he asked me a couple. He said, oh, uh, I guess you've been doing parts between 15 and 17. Uh, oh, yes, 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 I have, as a matter of fact. You know, well, I truthfully, I had uh, in plays, you know, in class, just not, you know, in, in front of the camera. Uh, so he said, would you like to do a screen test? I said, sure. I mean, doesn't everybody get to do a screen test? No, but I didn't know. So it was then thereafter, weeks later, that I went for my screen test, which is, you know, your viewers can see it right on the uh, Internet. Um, and I did some martial arts. I was uh, had been studying uh, karate, which had just come into the United States about six years before. And I broke a board with my hand and did some judo and stuff like that. And then uh, uh, I did a scene and uh, uh, which I was given a sheet of paper and it basically said Bruce and Dick with paragraphs. And it didn't say Batman or Bruce Wayne or Dick Grayson. I mean, not that I would have recognized anyway, but it just said Bruce and Dick. And here's these paragraphs. And they said, uh, we want to introduce you to the actor who's going to be, you know, playing the part of Bruce. And you're going to play the part of Dick. I said, OK. And they introduced me to Adam West. And I sat down next to him and I said, well, hey, how about us reading the lines together? You know, which is something you kind of do. So you get used to the pacing of the other person. And within five minutes, the two of us were laughing. We got along so well, and we never stopped laughing for 50 years. I mean, we just had the best time. And we got up and we did our stuff, and director said, great. And I said, well, thank you very much. And I started to leave, and they said, whoa, wait, wait a minute. We're not done with you yet. I said, oh. And they said, yes, we want you to walk on the other side of the soundstage, way down that other end there. And there's a trailer there with two wardrobe men who are going to help you get dressed. I said, oh, oh, okay. I said, you know, frankly, I'm perfectly capable of dressing myself. Oh, no, 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 no. 
you don't understand. You just go on down there and you'll see when you get down there, you just oh you look for the, the light in the doorway. You'll see it. I go down there and there's a trailer and there's a light on. I go in and there's two gentlemen there, wardrobe department, and they have what looks like a like a giant couch or a giant, I don't know, it's not a bed, but it's just gigantic. And on it are all these clothes. And I said, am I going to put some of this on? They said, no, you're going to put all of it on. I said, what? And they helped me get dressed in Richard, the most uncomfortable costume you could imagine. Everything itched or hurt or pinched or burned. Not one thing was comfortable. The boots were too tight. The tights pull the hair on my legs. The 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 t-shirt with a vest on it with with the wool poking through the t-shirt, <laughs> those sharp wool things into my chest. The cape pulling my head back because it was double thick bridal satin. The mask with that my eyelashes were like every second they were bumping against the mask. You know, it irritates your eye. Oh my gosh. I, I'm telling you, I, I can't. And the believe. funny thing about all this is you're supposed to act natural in front of a camera for <laughs> right, right. with all of this going on. And all, all I could do was hobble. Hobble is that's a bad and, and as I, I but being a positive person now, I'm a positive person. So as I'm hobbling toward the door, I turned around, I said to these two wardrobe guys, I said, Well, look, the good news here is after another 20 or 30 minutes. I'll never have to wear this costume again. Famous last words, right? And then I, I, I went out the door, nearly broke my neck because with that mask on, you, there's, you only have vision straight ahead. I couldn't see down. I couldn't see peripherally. I mean, I nearly broke my neck and I got there to the set and there was the new guy I just met, Adam West. And he's in this giant costume too. And he's got six foot four, really big guy. And he said, long cape and blue. And, I, and I'm saying, what is this? Maybe this is a some kind of Shakespearean period piece. <laughs> and when you saw each other, I mean, for the first time in these costumes, I mean, what was, I mean, was he having the same experience that you were having? No, no, he already knew all about it. He, his agent had submitted him and everything. And uh, then after this thing, I and I still, I didn't even know afterwards. And I left and I said, I just don't know what this is about. But I did see the other people. There was another, you know, young man who was also trying out for the role and another actor, uh, you know, uh, uh, trying Peter to- Peter Dial. Peter yeah. Dial. Uh -huh. Yes. Yes. And- uh, and I just thought I had really done a good job. I really had done a good job. Uh, and it, it was really kind of like just letting go, you know? It, it wasn't, I mean, one of the things that I think is a problem for people wanting to be an actor is that, you know, if, if somebody, for example, walked down the street and you said to them, oh, you know, you have a great walk. I'm, I'd like to film that. Would you walk again? <laughs> I guarantee you their walk would not be the same. Because all of a sudden it's like, you know, oh, well, gee, am I doing this right? Am I doing, you know, should I go faster? I mean, but for me, I just kind of like had fun with it, you know? I just had fun with it. And it was, it was almost like forgetting where I was and going back into that daydreaming kind of thing. And uh, I had studied my lines. And so, um, and I have a near photographic memory. 
uh, because of the speed reading. Mm -hmm. So I never had a problem with that. I did, in fact, when we did the show, almost every single take I did was on the first take. And my dear friend Adam would get angry with me, say, Bert, you're making me look bad. Will you few make a few mistakes here? I can't, you know, because he was having a teleprompter that he couldn't read well. <laughs> so anyway, but uh, it was it was wonderful. And I when I, I waited six weeks to find out and I would getting calls after the first week from the studio. What's your shoe size? Oh, seven and a half. Oh, what's your hat size? Well, I don't know. I never wore a hat. Well, go get your head measured. Well, where do I go to get my head measured? I mean, all of these things that were so different. And then after six weeks, I'm not hearing anything other than, you know, someone's calling to ask a question. I got a call from the agents. They said, you know, come on in. Uh, we're going to we're going to sign you. We're going to sign contracts with you. I said, well, that's great. And I felt, wow, they're going to represent me. Now I'm really going to have a, a, you know, formal agent representing me. So when I went to the to their office and, and they had me go in a room and I sat down, they said, oh, the paperwork is in there. And I sat down and I looked at this thing is like an inch and a half thick. And I said, wow, I didn't know agency contracts were that thick. And I started to look at it and it said 20th Century Fox Studios. And I said, wait a minute. I went to the door and said, no, no, you this must be wrong. This is not for me. I'm signing my agency contracts. I said, no, 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 no. You're signing those contracts. I said, really? And it turns out that the studio thought my agents told me that I had the part and my and my agents thought that the studio told me. And for four of the six weeks, I had the role and didn't know and was just rotting away. Wow. Wow. I know that there were two pilots that were filmed for this. Did the, the style of acting that you and Adam brought to the show, was the other pilot in the same style or was it completely different? No, we just had one pilot, one pilot, Richard. Um, we, when I got the role, I think you might find interesting, your, your listeners and viewers might find interesting that um, the executive producer came to me, William Dozier, and he said, uh, you know, Bert, we interviewed more than 1,100 young actors over the last year and a half for this role. And, and we selected you. And would you like to know why we selected you? And I said, wow, yes, sir, I would very much. He said, forgetting television, if there really was a Robin, I mean, like the real thing, we think you personally would be it. So we don't want you to quote act. We actually, we want you to be yourself and we want you to be enthusiastic. Well, as you can tell, I don't have too much of a problem being enthusiastic. No, no, and that's wonderful. <laughs> and, and so for 120 episodes, I had my fantasies and all of the things that I daydreamed about and the fighting and all of this kind of stuff, which actually, and be, I was brown belt and karate. So in other words, there was a lot of real reality to what I was doing, but at the same thing, you know, at the same time, it's, it's a show. But when I got in front of that camera, I just had the time of my life. And, 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 and I was a little bit new to it. I want to tell you one thing that happened on the very, well, well, it was it was the second day. Uh, no, excuse me. It was the second week of filming. We we had the Batmobile and Batman and Robin were supposed to pull up to the outside of this building uh, that's supposed to be a museum. And we're going to climb up the outside of the building because we heard that the Riddler is going to supposedly rob the, the museum. So uh, when the Batmobile pulls up, but the building is behind us. Right. So instead of opening the door and getting out, 
And I just jumped up on the door, walked to the back fin, and jumped off the back. And the director said, cut, cut. We didn't light up, line, you know, light for that. You're supposed, you know, we have you coming out the door. I said, oh, okay, all right. Then he stopped for a minute. He said, you know, I really like what you did. That was so spontaneous. All right, let's take 40 minutes and let's light this. And they put down the track and the dolly and all the, I mean, 45 minutes to an hour to light that shot. But in, in now what I didn't know is that George Barris, who built the Batmobile, was there on the set with two of his uh, people that work on the cars. And he was hysterically angry with me because I was walking on his paint job. And not only walking on his paint job, Richard, but walking on that fin, which had a very fine pointed fiberglass edge to it that I could have messed it up. Now, I did have rubber on the bottom of my soles and I didn't stomp or anything. But, you know, and then I understand he, he and his crew were coming up to give it to me and the director and said, you, you know, blocked it and says, don't you go near my actor. You stay away. <laughs> I mean, all of this stuff I heard later, you know, but for me, I, I just did what I thought was natural and it seemed to work. Oh, it certainly did work. Was there any other show um, at that time that had, um, the, I mean, the format of doing it twice a week? Uh, I don't recall any other show in history being set up that way. I, I don't either. It was kind of done like the old serial, The Perils of Pauline, or one of these things where the cliffhanger, you know, and um, and once, and by the way, kind of something interesting, um, during the entire 120 episodes, 32 directors, not one time did any director ever tell Adam or I how to say our line. Not once. Mm. Not once. And we, he and I had this chemistry that just, just clicked, you know? I mean, and, and you know, in, in my belief is the great comic duos have always had great contrast, you know, like Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, you know, Ed McMahon, John, Johnny Carson, you know, great contrast. And Adam and I not only had a physical contrast, so he was so so big, and, and in fact, what they did is they put three-inch heels on, on a six-foot-four man to make him six-foot-seven, and they took my heels off because I'm like almost 5'8 to make me proportionally smaller. But Adam had this way of – he really envisioned himself in such a grand way, you know, kind of – Kind of thought thinking of himself like Winston Churchill. I mean, he, he had these big ideas. He once told me, you know, there's the three B's bird. I said, Oh, well, what's the three B's? Bond, Beatles, and Batman. And so, <laughs> Adam, don't, don't go telling people that. And and but so when he would talk in this very slow, very big, the slower he talked, the faster I talked. And and it just worked. The, I just sort of played off the, his chemistry, you know. And and it was uh, it was it was a lot of fun. And he and I just got along so well. And you know, you can tell when people have a chemistry and they work well together. I, I mean, was going to ask about that because yeah. I mean, in this business, uh, I'm also an actor. In this business, you do a show. And sometimes actors, you may never see each other again, but you maintained a friendship to the very end of his life. Uh, and uh, and I read several articles and uh, you were very good friends until the very end of his life. 
what was that bond that kept you together throughout the rest of your lives? Well, from the very beginning, Adam was one of the funniest people I have ever met in my entire lifetime. You know, you have all these comedians that go out there and they get on the stage and they use a lot of foul language to get people to laugh. Adam had this natural way of looking at things that was just so hilarious. I mean, I remember when we did a show for Filmation, which was kind of like a Hanna-Barbera. They did comic, uh, you know, cartoon stuff. And uh, we did this one. It was called Batman. It had a little character named Batmite. And I was talking to the president of the companies. Um, and uh, I remember him saying to me, he says, his name was Norm Prescott. And he said, he said, you know, Bert, he says, uh, that partner of yours is quite a, quite a character. I said, oh, yeah, Adam is like a lot of fun. He says, you know, he's the only actor I ever met that in every single thing he said had a sexual connotation. <laughs> and, you know, Adam really did. He, he, he had a, but it was such a fun-loving kind of playful innuendo that you never knew if he was really serious or not. I mean, we would go out and, and do these autograph things. And I'm telling you, we hold arena records more than rock groups. People were like standing for five oh, hours in the line. And, and like, you know, young ladies would come up and, and he, you know, he just be spontaneous. You know, he's in his cowl and cape and he, he'd lean over to one of these uh, very attractive young ladies. He says, I have an itch in my ear. Would you scratch it? It's like <laughs> sort of that kind of scratches thing. And, and, he, and he says, oh, he says, that's, he says, you know, he says, that's amazing. He says, you know, uh, look at you. He says, I'm beginning to have strange stirrings in my utility belt. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> so weird and so unpredictable and so embarrassing but I, I i you couldn't help but love him and we i mean we sometimes i mean we had our families you know and and everything which of course 99 of time but once in a while on a saturday morning we'd go out and play tennis together and i remember one time playing tennis and we were out there and here we are playing tennis on the court and it's a public court and people came on the court and they kind of looked at Adam and then they kind of looked at me and they'd say, Oh my gosh, it's Batman and Robin playing tennis. You know, that's great. Kind of funny. When, when did you become first become aware of the iconic status that this show had uh, taken over the nation? Because I mean, it was Batmania everywhere. It was about three and a half months after the show aired that I made my first personal appearance, okay? And the appearance was uh, in Tacoma, Washington at a place called the B&I Circus Store. Just imagine a huge mall-like location with all these clothing, furniture, I mean, everything you can imagine under one gigantic roof. But they also had wild animals in cages. I mean, real tigers. I mean, now you couldn't get near them. And it was, everything was very done, you know, safely and stuff like that. But that's when, and I'll tell you why I, I, I what experience I had there that kind of changed things for me is that up until that time, I was working five days a week, 14, 12 to 14 hours a day on a cold sound stage where I was, I was really 21. I, when I got the role, I was 20 going on 21. But at 21, I was doing this and Adam was the closest person in age to me. He was 37 when I was 21. 
So, you know, I mean, there was like, that was a person I could gravitate to, the closest person around my age, you know. And then all of the crew were, you know, top professionals. I mean, they were most of them in their 50s and 60s. I mean, these are the studio guys that shot all the major TV series and movies. I mean, the studio had the best of the best. They were wonderful, tremendously talented. But for me, it's kind of a, it was kind of lonely because, you know, I, I, I mean, it's a cold sound stage. I've got these tights on. I usually, because I don't have the, the cape and the cowl and the mask on until just before you shoot because it's just so irritating to your eyes and stuff that I would wear a robe because it was cold. So here I'm sitting in a robe, you know, waiting 45 minutes to shoot. I shoot for 30 seconds, Richard, 30 seconds, and I got to wait another 45 minutes to shoot 30 seconds. I know. I wait know. another 45 minutes. So, and, and the thing is, though, you say, well, you know, you can take a book and you can sit there and read your book. Well, guess what? There's never any peace. Even though you're not shooting, you have people come out. Oh, the second assistant directors who are always panicking. I mean, you can see their nerves are on the outside of their bodies. They're always worried. Oh, Bert, we got to have you in makeup right now. Oh, we got to check this. Oh, wardrobe has a problem. Can you go over here? Oh, my gosh. Never any peace whatsoever. Uh, so, but, but that's okay. That's okay. And then of course, no privacy either, you know, like you're in your dressing room, you know, getting dressed, pulling up your tights and it, instead of knocking on the door, well, they do knock on the door. They knock on the door and open it. They open, open it at the same here. time. We have yeah. some press here and I'm and my, I'm my, my, in my underwear, pulling up my tights. You know, I mean, they, they said, well, we did knock. Yeah, but you opened it right as you knocked. you know, <laughs> it, you know <laughs> it's that. And, and but, I mean, you get used to it, but, but for me, it only when I made the appearance and then all of a sudden I saw that when, when I got to this Tacoma, which is like uh, not too far from Seattle, it's like, you know, they're kind of twin cities. Uh, and all like, uh, it, it was like hard to get to the place it was going to work. And I said, why is it so hard to get there? Oh, people have been camping out on the streets for three, from Wednesday to, to your appearance on a Saturday. And, and I said, really? And they said, yes, and yeah, and don't, but don't worry. We rented the University of Washington football team as your bodyguards. I said, what do you mean? I don't need a bodyguard. Oh, you don't understand. I said, well, people trying to hurt me or something? No, no, no. Just the crowds are enormous. I said, what? And it turns out that that weekend they handed out 301,000 raffle tickets to people that came to that appearance. And it was just for me. Adam was in New York at Shea Stadium. He sold out Shea Stadium on a Friday and Saturday night. And 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 so he was doing a whole thing. And and I was kind of by, I was by myself up there doing this. Uh, but I, funny, something funny happened I wanna I'll share with you and your, your viewers. Um, where I got dressed into the costume, unfortunately, was quite a ways from where I was signing autographs. <clears throat> and I had all these giant football players on either side walking with me, you know, down this big, huge indoor corridor and all of this stuff. And I was walking along on one of the, the autograph sessions to get to the where I was going to sign. And there was these two elderly ladies coming the opposite way. And I don't think they'd seen Batman. I don't think they'd heard about Batman <laughs> because they looked at me in that costume. And one lady turned to the other and said, oh, damn hippie. Oh, of course. <laughs> Not a hippie, but I mean, they thought I was a hippie because remember, this is the 60s. This is the 60s. This is the flower goes. 
you know, all of that kind of stuff. But it, it and it was just for me, it was just so weird. It just like so unexpected that I just didn't expect to have anything like this happen. You know what I'm saying? In other words, uh, it, it was it was and it was I was kind of like dumbfounded. But I said, well, you know, maybe it's just one of these freak things. Right. But after the next appearance and I started saying, wow, you know, people are really nuts for this. And then you see all the press and, you know, and, and you you go to a thing to sign autographs and people literally got into a tugging war over your paper drinking cup. I mean, it was like crazy. Oh, I've seen it. I, I did stock years ago with Barbara Eden. Uh -huh. And she said, you haven't lived to, you've seen a 60-year-old man uh, at six o'clock in the morning dressed in a genie costume. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, I never saw that. Yeah, but, she, I mean, but you know, all kinds of weird things yes. happen, you know. It's, uh, uh, and when, I mean, she has the most, I, I, the uh, fans are fans. Right. And they could not even tell us where she was staying because uh, the fans were just legion. They just show up. Okay. And if they find out where she is, they're knocking at her door and everything. Um, two questions that I want to ask, and then we really want to talk about the work that you're doing now as well. Uh, but you, on Batman, so many iconic stars appeared on that show. And early in your career, you get a chance to work with... Uh, Ethel Merman and Cesar Romero and uh, Frank Gorshin and uh, the, uh, Peter Ustinov. Um, were you, I mean, did you, at, even at that early age, realize the gravitas of working with these iconic stars? Oh, I did. I was like, I, I would describe myself as like the kid in the candy store, where every week you had a major star that either I had seen them on television or I watched them in the movie theaters, you know? Uh, I mean, Vincent Price. I remember watching The Raven as a kid, being so frightened. And here, when they say, oh, Vincent Price is playing Egghead, and he comes on the set, and I see him, and it's like that moment when my, as a childhood, you know, like like my stomach, like, you know, gets a pang in my stomach and fear for a moment. And yet, the nicest man in the world, and all these people were so professional. Oh, my gosh. I wish actors and actresses today had that, I mean, there was a, a style and an elegance and, oh, just so impressive. And I just loved every minute of every one of them talking to them. And, uh, you know, and I didn't get a chance to talk too much because, you know, they'd sit down and with, with their set, you know, and there'd be makeup or whatever. But once in a while, I get a chance to talk for a few moments or to, to them. And I loved it. I had a great time. Was there a particular, I know they were two-part episodes, but was there a particular episode that was your favorite that stands out above all others? Not really, and I'll tell you why. Batman, for me, was a very dangerous show. I mean, I went into the emergency hospital four days in a row in the first four days of filming from second-degree burns, a broken nose with a two-by-four wow. landing on. I mean, I wasn't sure I was going to survive the first week, okay? <laughs> or the first episode. Uh, so for me, any time that I could walk away in one piece, I'd say that was a great day. <laughs> that was a great day. Well, I want to talk about the work that you're doing now, because God bless you with Gentle Giants. And uh, you and your wife started this uh, with, it started, first of all, if I'm uh, correct on this, with you rescuing uh, dogs. Am I correct? Yes, yes. 
we we were living in Los Angeles. We had our daughter together at the time where we were living. It was right there at the beach. And we had like, I mean, the property so valuable there. We had like a 4,000 square foot house on a 2,000 square foot lot. I mean, we had five feet on three sides and 15 feet. And our daughter, you know, at a year and a half started wandering out onto the balconies. And I'm going, oh, no, oh, no, I, I have a heart attack. I can't do that. Let's move inland. So we moved inland about an hour from Los Angeles, a wonderful community. It's a horse community, but it's also very rural. I mean, it's where horses have the right of way over cars here. I mean, it's very all American. You you drive down the street and instead of a dotted white line, you have a dotted red, white, and blue line. I mean, very all American. And uh, I remember that we wanted to get a, a, a dog for our daughter. And uh, both Tracy and I had, had grown up with dogs. She had grown up with an Irish wolfhound. I had grown up with and like Great Danes. So we ended up saying, well, you know, let's see what we could do. And we heard about a dog needing a rescue. We didn't know much about it. Rescue, what it what, rescue from what? And it turns out that when people can't keep their dogs, uh, they have to give them up. And if they go to a shelter, they don't make it out of the shelter most of the time. They, you know, after three or four days, uh, if they don't adopt them, they get put to sleep. Mm. And in shelters, that's where the dogs are all barking. They're very loud. You know, I mean, as we're speaking, you don't hear anything behind me. And there's 50 dogs in my house right now, Richard. Everyone is trained not to bark unless they sense danger. So, but the point was, is that if you have a big Great Dane in a cage, in a shelter, and all the dogs are barking and that dog is barking, who's going to take out that big Great Dane when the dog is bigger than the person taking it out? And it's barking, right? So we we rescued this first Great Dane and then we rescued a second one. And we felt, well, you know, the people that we're hearing that need to give them up, they're still in their home. So they're probably safe. Turned out that all of them had to give it up. We didn't hear much about it, but we found out a couple of months later, everyone we didn't take was put to death in a shelter. Mm. And we got really upset. So I said to my wife, Tracy, this is the first week in August of 1994. I said, honey, we can't let these dogs die. How about just for a couple of weeks, just for a couple of weeks till we find somebody else to take this over. Let's take these dogs. I mean, we have five acres. We got everything we could possibly need, all the room for dogs. Let's just take these dogs. Can't be that many dogs, right? Well, by the end of August, okay, 1994, first of all, nobody had taken it over. <laughs> In fact, to this day, 28 years later, I'm still waiting for somebody to come take it over. But by the end of August, we had 102 full-size Great Danes in our house and 62 puppies under seven weeks of age from seven litters in our house that not from getting giving birth here, but rescuing from shelters, litters, or people that never planned to have their dogs have pregnancies. All of a sudden, everybody's giving all these dogs to us. It's like, because we had found that the lady who in Southern California was rescuing herself had died. So nobody was rescuing Great Danes. So we took these dogs and, you know, we loved them. We cared for them. We had started adopting them. We started really learning. And one of the things that we noticed is the giant dogs traditionally live the shortest lifespan. I mean, Mastiffs and Irish Wolfhounds live only six to eight years. Great Danes live seven to nine years. And when we would lose a dog, Richard, it devastated us. I mean, my wife and I would cry. And we vowed 
that if we could find a way, we would help them live longer and live healthier. And first thing we created was a special feeding and care program, which your viewers can go to our website, gentlegiantsdogfood.com, and they could read our special feeding and care program. Here. I was on your website today, and when I first saw the video of you and your wife with all in the dogs. In bed with 50 of them, yes. Uh, in the bed with all the dogs. I first of all thought that these dogs had been superimposed. Right. Everybody screen. says that. Photoshop <laughs> it until you press the play button and you see they're all real and they're, you know, yes, right. 11 when I, I When I was performing in Windsor, Ontario, I used to, one of the funniest songs and the song Who Let the Dogs Out had just come right. out. Right. And, uh, you know, you should be able to train your dogs with that song because it is it, it's such an amazing video everyone has to go just to see that i wanted to find a way to grab that video to show it here tonight but i couldn't figure out the technology to do it oh. everyone please go and see this video it's amazing <laughs> it, it is kind of wild uh, uh, but so anyway long story short we developed a feeding care program and just by and this took years to do but we found a way to help these dogs were living three to four to five years longer just by the way you feed them and care for them. Very specific instructions, elevating the food and water dishes to a specific height for every dog, feeding dogs five or more times a day, smaller, more frequent meals. And then we got to a point where we said, you know, we've got these Great Danes normally living seven to nine years, now living 12 to 14 years. But is there more we could do? And we said, well, the only thing we could think of was make the food. So we went out and took our savings and spent $4 million over a period of years to, define a, to, to develop the finest food in the world. And our food is different than every other dog food there is. Different, significantly different. And with our food, we have dogs living up to 27 and a half years with such a wonderful quality of life and no illness whatsoever. Our dogs, I've got 50 plus dogs here in my home, and the only time they ever go to a veterinarian is every three years for a $17 rabies update. And I tell people all the time, you know, all you need is one good vet bill. And anything you think you've saved, you haven't saved because vet bills have become like the price of human medicine. And I want to say, you know, uh, my niece is a veterinarian and everyone who has pets, please get pet insurance. Yes. Please get pet insurance. Yes, it's very, it works. And, uh, and, and so, so we developed this food and here's the thing. People say, well, what could be so different? They, they'll look at the ingredients and unless you're really, you know, a new pet nutritionist and an expert, you, you could look at it and you might be confused. And, well, this looks similar to another food. But let me tell you two giant things about our food. There's many, but two giant things that you can understand why our dogs can live two and three times their normal lifespan. Number one, anybody that has a dog, you have a dog. Whatever you're feeding your dog, and it doesn't matter if it's the least expensive grocery store food or the most expensive pet store food, doesn't matter. Go pick up three or four kibbles, rub those kibbles in your fingers real firmly, put the kibbles down, rub your fingers together, and see if you don't feel that slightly greasy feeling. Everybody feels it, okay? You know what that is, Richard? That's animal fat. 
animal fat that has filled been filled the food inside and coated on the outside of the food and you say well why would they do it well let me tell you why animal fat confuses the brain even humans to believe they're always hungry so your poor dog will always be hungry which means stressed shorting their life because stress kills but always hungry so they'll eat more food so you have to buy more dog food our food is bone dry on the outside we don't fill it with fat and we don't coat it with fat people now do you do cat food as well or is it just for dogs think of it this way would you take a can of bacon fat and pour it down your garbage disposal at home would you do that people say of course not i said well why wouldn't you do it well it's going to clog it i said that's right and when it hardens it's like cement so when you realize that animal fat will ruin a metal garbage disposal why would anyone ever feed an animal a food that every single kibble is filled with fat and coated with fat people go oh my gosh never thought of it that way that's number one number two there's a wonderful video on our website gentlegiantsdogfood.com the section is non-gmo ingredients people nowadays know they've heard of what's happened with genetically modified organisms in the food by the way about 98 percent of our food supply in the united states has been genetically modified that's but true. What, what does it really mean it means that roundup which you hear about in all these lawsuits and people getting cancer and suing these big companies has been mixed into the dna of plants so that when a farmer grows for example rice and he's growing the rice and pests will attack the plant but when he sprays a pesticide instead of killing the plant the plant doesn't die it lives it produces the rice but the rice absorbs the pesticide and when you feed it to an animal it causes them to get cancer on our website gentlegiantsdogfood.com the non-gmo ingredient section there's a video that we took from a site that does research on on gmos in human food and in animal food and why this eight minute video was is so great is because everyone interviewed in the video richard is a veterinarian and here's what almost everyone says the same thing which is 10 15 20 years ago they would see one patient dog or cat a month that had cancer now with the gmos in the food supply every single day one out of every two dogs or cats they see has cancer and guess what there's less than a handful of companies that have non-gmo ingredients and to my knowledge ours is the only one that doesn't have a a little warning on the thing oh it could be contaminated with gmos because it's done in the same plants as something else ours is no gmos and now, now and, the dog food that you've created do you have 15,000 dogs that we have rescued that have lived in our house not in a yard richard not in a building in our house in our living room bedroom bathroom kitchen everywhere in our house we have dogs we've had less than a dozen dogs have cancer and most of them came with it before they came in. we we haven't had that because everything we do is non-gmo the best ingredients the best quality and my wife tracy and i this is our charity we don't take one dollar in salary from this this is all about wanting to make a better world where animals can live better humans can live better and the newest thing is the fact that two years ago 
<clears throat> we lost two of our cats because we rescue cats too. Not near as many, only three to 500, which is still a lot over the years. But we lost a cat that was 31 years old and another one that was 32 years old. Wow. And do you know what they were eating, Richard? Our dog food. Our dog food. We didn't have cat food at the time. They were eating our dog food. Now, we did have bowls of regular cat food there. They couldn't care about it. They wanted our dog food. And so we went back to the same top nutritionists, like four of them across the country. We said, we know the animals and cats love our food, but let's put in the extra things that cats need. A little more protein, a little this, a little that, more taurine, things like that. And we did, and now our cat food is doing amazing. And people are saying amazing things about it. That's wonderful. That, absolutely. So everyone, all of our pet, pet friends that are watching tonight, order, tell them you learned about it here. Uh, just incredible. Uh, I mean, you are truly, uh, you're a giant yourself among men. Uh, I, what you're doing is just amazing. And I have oh, a question for that. you. Uh, the The dog that you've created, is it a, is it, are there different brands for different types of dogs or no, that's all marketing our food is is certified by avco which is the equivalent of the fda only mm -hmm. for animals it's the american association of feed control officers mm -hmm. it's what regulates food we're certified in every state and we're also our food is certified for all life stages from puppies to, to adults to seniors and super seniors and all breeds I mean, I once saw that there was a dog food that I saw selling in stores and it said, oh, for German shepherds and another one for chihuahuas. And, oh, come on. I mean, I mean, what state do you live in, Richard? Are, are you in, I'm in New are, York? I'm in New York. All right. You're in New York. Tell me, do people in New York, can they enjoy a spaghetti dinner as much as people in California? Or do you have to have different spaghetti? I mean, my goodness. And, and so what we did is we made the best of the best ingredients. And another thing, we have gone way deeper than just what I've told you. We have analyzed what is it that is shortening dogs' lives. Let me tell you, besides the food, you know, okay, but there's other things. Dogs' bodies wear out much faster than human bodies, okay? And do you know what wears a dog's body out more than anything else? I don't. Digestion. Digestion. You say, well, what do you mean digestion? Think of it this way. As a human, at some point in our lives, we've all gone out, maybe eaten too much, come home and have to lie down to digest our food, you know, uh, some more often than others. But the point of it is when that happens, your body basically shuts down to doing everything else except digesting the food. If you only feed a dog, okay, once or twice a day, you are making that dog's body go through that massive digestive effort and it's prematurely wearing their bodies out. People call us all the time. We get about 1,100 people contacting us every week, Richard. Phone calls, emails, um, Facebook messages. And people, are they say things like, well, I don't understand it. I look on your website and I see videos of dogs running around like puppies in their 20s. And, and my dog is seven years old and he's struggling to get up. Mm -hmm. well, because of how you care for the dog and how you feed them. And one more quick example, I mentioned about elevating the food. One of the reasons is when you people, they, and you see these commercials on television from these pet food companies, the dog, a big great Dane is eating from the floor. 
Okay, what do, what do you think happens? It has to lean down to get the food. It chews, comes up, leans down to get water every single day, up and down and up and down. You're prematurely wearing the dog's body out. You don't do that. So everything we have designed, and I guess having lived with 15,500 dogs, we have 45 different breeds here, Richard. There's only 164 breeds of dogs. We've got 45 of them here. I mean, who else do you know that could have this kind of hands-on everyday experience? My wife, Tracy, spends about 15 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week for 28 years caring for dogs. We are experts. And that's not bragging because there's so much that you learn and you see every single day and you understand these animals. So we create a nurturing environment in which they live happily, no barking, okay? No medical issues, you know, and, and a great food. And, and, and I tell you, even when we lose one, you know how we lose it? They don't lose it from an illness. They go to sleep. And when they're in their 20s or whatever, they, want, they just don't wake up. And I guess if you got to go, that's probably the best way to go. Wow. Well, I don't want you to go, but we're at the end of our I hour. I dog food now. No, <laughs> I just finished a wonderful bowl. Well, you are just absolutely the best. Um, hold on for just a moment. I'm going to say a few closing remarks, and then I'm going to give you the final word tonight. Uh, so uh, we're still going to do a giveaway right now. Uh, Gentle Giants is the word tonight. And everybody, go to the website and order this dog food. I'm going to do that after tonight's show as well. Uh, we're going to do a drawing right now. Uh, and I'm going to do a, a special giveaway tonight. Thank you all for being here. Uh, we'll find out who the special uh, winner is tonight. Uh, Glenn Charlo. And he's got two wonderful cats. So, uh, Glenn, uh, call me later. Uh, Glenn does all my design work, everyone. Uh, so, Glenn, thank you. He designed uh, the wonderful graphic at the beginning of the show tonight. Great job. Uh, he, uh, he does a great job. He uh, designed uh, the graphics for our uh, sponsors tonight. Uh, Roger Neal, thank you for making this happen. He reached out and said, would you like to have Bert on the show? And I said, absolutely. Uh, so thank you, Bert, for being here. <laughs> I want to thank you all for being here tonight. Um, Gentle Giants uh, was the uh, word of the night. Uh, I always have a word of the day. And uh, we all can be gentle giants. Uh, we can all uh, make a difference in the world. Uh, Bert certainly is continuing to make a difference in the world. And I think it's important that we all do so uh, as we go through life. Uh, I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Uh, every single person watching this show tonight, and this show will be out there in perpetuity, you know people with pets. Let them know about the work that Bird is doing. Let them know about uh, this uh, incredible website. And let's keep this going, and let's just make this a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, we just have to get the word out there. Um, I, If you enjoyed tonight's show, and I hope you did, and I hope this is not your first time here. I know for many of you it isn't, but if it is, I hope that you will consider subscribing to this channel. Uh, please leave a comment on YouTube after tonight's show. Let us know what you think of tonight's show and share this with your friends. I always end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. 
Go to your Facebook friends list and reach out to the second name that pops up and reach out with a phone call. Not an email, not a private message, but a phone call. And let that person know what they mean to you. Uh, as a dear friend of mine, Sean Monagher always says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. And you never know what someone else is going through right now. I always say, if you're going to go out in a boat, make sure you bring a skipper along. Uh, we lose a lot of friends. And uh, as these friends pass on, there's an outpouring of love on social media about what they meant to us. We post pictures. Uh, we want to sh uh, share with everybody what that person meant to us. And I always think, wouldn't it be great if we could show them a month ago the difference that they made in our lives? Bert, I want to say that you've made a difference in all of our lives. Not only the work that you're doing now, but over the years, I mean, you've given me so much enjoyment. So for me to have the opportunity to sit down and talk with you tonight has been a real thrill. I thank you for being here. And anytime that you feel that you have anything that you want to talk about, uh, I hope that you'll come back on the show. Uh, this has been a real thrill for me. I'm going to leave the screen and I'm going to give you the final word. Anything you want to say about anything that we talked about tonight that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message you want to leave with everyone tonight, don't worry about how to end the show. As soon as you say goodbye, the final credits will roll. And again, Aaron and Deborah, thank you for sponsoring tonight's show. And Bert, it's all yours. Thank you. Well, thank you, Richard. Um, you know, I, I would just like to say that we're all on this planet for such a short period of time that we really should make the most of our, our lives. Every day is precious. I kiddingly tell people the first hundred years are the hardest, which actually is true. But every day we should, we should try to make things a little bit better than the day before. And kindness is a, is a wonderful thing because it comes back to you. Um, and we are living in such trying times and we have to be very careful because it is a dangerous world we live in. But try to, try to look for the positive things because they're there, you know. And uh, I also say, you know, live each day as though it were your last and someday you'll be right. But uh, I, I wish you all the very best. Uh, my wife and I have devoted our lives to caring for animals. Um, and actually now I'd like to mention that we are going to be doing things for humans. We're going to be producing movies and television shows. We have our own little studio in our, on our property. And we're going to try to do things that are uplifting so that all of us, all of us can be happy. And everybody deserves a chance at happiness. So anyway, I thank you all. And I wish all of you the very best and lots of love for you and your pets if you have them. So I would say, as we said on Batman, to the Batmobile, citizen. Goodbye. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.